Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. Leadership Learns podcast brings you inspiring stories from diverse global leaders from a range of different organizations and industries and how they innovate and improve to become the best possible leader. With me today is Peter Job, CEO and founder of Intergence. Peter has spent 16 years helping IT executives retain control of their digital ecosystems. After starting Intergence in 2003, Peter went on to create Hyperglance, the world's first 3D visualization tool for IT infrastructure and application process flows. He has brought that expertise to bear in the creation of Stratium, Intergence's cornerstone technology platform. Previously, Peter held sales and man- man- senior management positions at Gandalf, Alcatel, Throughpoint, and Omnetica. Peter, thanks so much for being with me. Good morning. How are you? And how on earth has the last 18 months been for you? <laughs> oh, morning, Pete. Um, it's been uh, a bit of a roller coaster ride, I think, um, for all of us, really. But we were lucky, I think, in some respects. Uh, and I, the reason I say luck was because, as, you, as your excellent introduction says, we're, you know, we, we're, we're IT infrastructure experts. Well, we call ourselves digital infrastructure experts, actually. And about three or four years ago, when we set our service center up, we had a couple of clients that um, had had some significant problems, which I hasten to add, we didn't cause ourselves. Um, we were brought in to fix them. And one was uh, Duke. And again, it, was, it wasn't the client's fault. One was a security issue that they had to resolve. And the other was actually a building problem where they just moved into a new building and had to move out very quickly because there was a structural problem with it. And Certainly, they you know they they'd got all their disaster recovery um, pretty well sorted out, so which is quite impressive actually. And we took some learnings from that ourselves, and we thought, well, we're setting our service centre up. What happens if we have a, a hit on that? What what would we do? So we we adopted a cloud first approach on everything, and obviously then we started helping um, our clients do similar things. So you know, for example, we put a cloud based contact centre in for our own use, but we were actually working with our clients migrating as part of our digital change program to move a lot of our clients into the cloud as well. So, of course, when the pandemic hit, you can argue it was more luck than judgment, that actually um, we were able to carry on working normally from home. So we moved everybody. So we already had a a work from home um, policy. We've got a 24 by 7 service center based in Cambridge, which we do everything from, you know, networks, data centers, desktop support, cloud support, that sort of thing. And actually, a lot of our guys and girls were, were very familiar with working from home anyway, so it wasn't a big big deal for us. I think, to answer your original question, the, the, the big challenge for us was that, you know, we, we do have a kind of a, a great working environment. I think if you ask any of our staff, they'll say that we've got a, a slightly quirky office based in Cambridge. We do a lot of collaborative work as well. Um, because it was, we have a dev team. You, may, you mentioned Stratium, which is our kind of cornerstone platform that allows us to see and do things much better for our clients. So we've got our own dev team. Now, a lot of the collaboration work went out the window because we're having to do it all on Teams. And then the second thing, really, which was a real problem for us was just the whole mental health issue around, you know, because some of us are quite lucky, you know, we like, might live in the country or we, you know, we've got nice homes, but there are also a significant number of staff who were quite young that probably bought their first home or lived in a flat or apartment. 
that were really quite struggling with this whole issue about how we, you know, how we actually cope with the whole mental health of being stuck in one place for quite some time. Or for that matter, you know, young families where you're trying to grapple um, the whole issue of homeschooling and everything else. So um, we did what we could to help. We, we actually invested in a in a platform called Unmind, which um, I don't know where you've heard of it. It's a fantastic platform, a you know, mental health platform where you can, it's got, it's got an app and stuff. So, and we also um, had a sort of a weekly team meeting where we, we just went and said, look, this is not a work call. You don't have to join it. It's not mandatory, but you can come and talk to anybody about what you're doing, what you're up to, what your weekend's going to be. And we had another kind of also in addition to the Unmind. So we had another third thing was we also had our own HR platform as well. So people could go to that for advice and help. You know, we felt that was the best way we could, we could, what we could do to actually help our staff members during what was for all of us, including myself, um, really difficult. It will be a, a really good conversation to have today between that combination of looking back and how did things react. You know, one of the areas I wanted to speak to you about was mental health because such a good thing that it is now so commonplace and so widespread that people recognize that these are real issues that so, so many people go through. And I think ultimately everyone has mental health. It's just a case of you know where you're at in your own cycle of mental health, right? And I think things like those initiatives, Peter, are really good things to share. And one of the things that I want to do today in the conversation is, is have a discussion around that, the future of the workplace, because there's real contrasting viewpoints and styles out there from the Goldman Sachs CEO, David Solomon, talking about remote workers and aberration to HSBC contrasting to cut its in-office and cut its offices by 40%. We'll get on to those bits and pieces. But uh, I, I was uh, always like to speak to people that have a different route to what they've ended up being done in. And I think you come from a geography degree was one of those things that I definitely wanted to touch upon. We, we've got a lot to cover, of course. But how have you ended up doing what you're doing, Peter? Because it wouldn't be obvious from, from your background that that was what was going to happen. Well, no, I mean, I mean I, I've, I've always loved geography. I've loved climate. I mean, you know, that's the thing that's very close to my heart. And in fact, we're doing sustainability away day for CIOs and CTOs next Tuesday, funnily enough. So, um, you know, sustainability is something which is really top of lots of industry leaders' um, minds at the moment. Geography is something which I, I just loved, you know, and I still love today. I mean, you probably know I did this bike ride and, you know, 330 miles across beautiful parts of England, we forget what, you know, what an amazing country we do live in, you know, right across the peaks. So that certainly tested my um, fitness. But, but the geography thing, um, I was actually going to become a teacher. So that was that was my kind of thing I wanted to do. But when I graduated, which was a long time ago now, so I have to admit, 83, 84, the, the prospects of teachers wasn't very good at all. And I had friends who'd gone into it. And in the end, a friend of mine was actually in sales. And he said, well, why don't you look at a sales job? So I got into selling photocopiers. That was my first job, you know, sales job. And... You know, I've been in sales ever since, and and some people are a bit sniffy about sales being pushy and all the other stuff. But actually, for me, it's been the most amazing career because I've met some amazing people. I've done all sorts of different things, um, and it's been a been a fantastic journey for me because I've sold pretty much everything from you know high value capital goods through to toilet rolls. And actually, I think if you you know if you've if you've been given the right training, and this is one of the things that is close to my heart at the moment, because I don't think you know I think there's lots of stuff on LinkedIn about being pestered by salespeople and this sort of thing. And I think part of the problem is 
Um, certainly when I was around, we had great training from the likes of Xerox and IBM and everything else. And I don't think now that the training is nearly as good as it was in terms of good corporate sales processes as it was sort of 20, 30 years ago. You know, the geography uh, degree, you can argue, didn't really help me directly. However, you know, understanding how to work with clients in a collaborative, um, collegiate way. And I think it did help indirectly when I set Intigence up in 2003. Yeah, thank you, Peter. I think it's always nice to give a bit of context to listeners in relation to how people have got to where they have to. It's always interesting. There are such a, a varied approaches. I think it'll be really good to speak about now, uh, as you say, with Intigence since 2003. We founded our business in 2008. So, um, you know, been around a little bit of time now and have certainly seen some trends in, in, in the market. This has got to be the first time in history where something has happened to every single business at the same time, in the same way, and obviously the other changes in markets in 2008. What would you describe? I mentioned before the different approaches and uh, from from some of the biggest companies in relation to working from home, working remotely, and all these type of things. What's what's your um, opinion on the right model, Peter? Well, it's, it's a it's a brilliant question, and absolutely um, at the moment, top of our minds in terms of how we cope. So. I, I think I alluded to the fact we have a service centre here, so we can work completely remotely. And sometimes, you know, if you come here on a, on a certain day, there will be literally nobody in. The view when we started to lift off was that we've always said we wanted to return to the office, and we've made that very clear to all members of staff. Now, a minority pushed back because they'd actually got quite used to working from home, and they were quite happy with it. And we're very cognizant of the fact that's okay, but we did make it clear that, look, we're going to end up, we think, with a hybrid model. And, and, and there's some very good reasons for that, in our view. Actually, it's really important that we're all human beings and we like social interaction. And I think you see this on the radio, on the TV, people saying, wow, I've just been to a concert for the first time in two years, or I've been to a bar, or I've met family that I haven't seen. And I don't know whether you've had the same thing, but most of us have been really busy the last three months because we've just been catching up with, with seeing people. And I think that's something that gets forgotten about is that it's so important that we socially interact with each other and the, the office is a really important thing for people to get um, to grips with. Now, some people are okay with that. They're, they're quite happy working from home and we need to be able to deal with that as well. But I think the, the general view here is that we, we have returned to the office and actually the vast majority of people have welcomed it. Now, we have also been very careful. We did all this COVID secure stuff, so we've got a rotor now. So if you come to the office, it's a lot quieter than it would be, but we're trying to get back to the habits of people coming in. And I think that, say, the vast majority of staff have actually welcomed that, and we're, we're working well with it. I want to talk about learning a little bit because we've had a really big hiring summer. I think we've had about 70 graduates into the business. And, and, and one of the things that we've had to be – incredibly transparent about is that when you're a graduate going into the role for the first time there certainly might be lots and lots of companies in niches or with due to the size of them that can do a fully remote onboarding fully learned training but a little bit like yourself we, we try and hire individuals that love working with people love impacting change for clients and candidates and and, and like all these things in our opinion is going to be a very very leading way to be able to learn and that's by sitting with colleagues, learning from situations that occur, having those desk chats, listening to those things that unfold as part of the working day. 
and it, uh, it'll be good, good to get back to the, the culture and human reaction conversation in a bit. But do you think that learning uh, for employees on the hybrid model has been impacted in a negative way, Peter? Yes and no. I think that I can't see how you can do training properly remotely. I mean, there's, there's plenty of remote learning platforms. However, you can't beat being next to someone or going out on a, on a sales call with somebody. You can't do that uh, in a training room or, or, or for that matter, you know, on Teams or a Zoom call. So, so, so I, I believe you have to have that social interaction. Where it becomes even more important is where you're um, running software development teams. So, and again, there is an argument that it says, well, you can do things on Kanban boards, you, know, you can do it via Teams or whatever. But actually, any you've talked to any of my team, they're so much more productive now. We're, we're getting back to working in, in a sort of a collegiate team environment where people are face to face. Things have just moved forward much quicker. And we've got some stats to prove that as well. Yeah. yeah, I think it's one thing having an opinion. And when you've got data to back that up, it's um, it's one of the things to keep competitive in a, you know, you guys are in an incredibly competitive space, as are we. If it takes you two or three times as long to do something because you're all trying to do it remotely and there's a delay in the Zooms and it's just not as collaborative, you yeah. are going to be falling behind ultimately. So I do think from a leadership perspective, trying to find the balance that allows collaboration but also allows that work-life balance, so to speak, or the right setup, I think is um, is always going to be tricky. Um, one, one of the things I wanted to ask you your opinion on as well was I think there are some roles, of course, that can be much more straightforward and really can be 100% remote all of the time. There are definitely those roles in business that can be. But that will always, or it can surely have an impact on what you're trying to do culturally. Because your point before about human interaction, I absolutely agree with. And a lot of that, does it not also impacts an in-house culture within a business as well? Because having those little moments of being able to catch up with a coffee or just have a drink with someone at the end of the day or whatever it may be, these are things that are part of what a business feels like to be in. And do you think there's a risk with hybrid models or you know, largely remote workers that an organization's culture wouldn't be as strong from a cultural perspective? It's a great question. I did watch one of, I can't remember who it was, one of your previous podcasts, fascinating gentleman that, that was talking. And I can't remember whether he said that culture wasn't something that came from the top of the business. I can't remember, but I, I profoundly disagree with that. It's my personal opinion, but I do think the culture starts with the CEO and the and the board. And, and I do think that remote working doesn't doesn't give you that, that that ability to actually show that culture in the business because again, you know, we're we're very keen to make sure we do company events. I know you do the same thing. Well, we haven't been able to do those for the last two years. Whether it's you know meeting with our teams in London because we have quite a few teams on site doing work for clients, whether it's doing um, things in Cambridge, whether it's going out go karting, or, or or these sort of events are really important because not only does it allow teams to meet, but it also allows the teams to meet the management team as well. And I'm a great fan of Terry Lee. He used to turn up you know in Tesco's when he was there and, and would just do the stuff on the floor with the, with the, the uh, with the customers. So. You know, they never knew where he was going to turn up, and it wasn't seen as a frightening experience. It was wow, this this guy's the CEO of Tesco's, and he's still prepared to, you know, put put the uniform on and just be a normal worker. And I think that's also really important as well. One of the reasons we started the podcast to begin with, Peter, has been so many just terrific examples of people. I refer to it as getting in the mud, rolling your sleeves up, getting in the mud, and showing like, well, this is we are literally all in this together at the moment in relation to these kind of situations. How do we want to react and I'm here because I genuinely care about making sure that we come out the other side of it better than we were before. And I think as we talked about it briefly before we started recording, but that 
authenticity yes. is one of those things that has either been very apparent during the last 18 months or people have thought, no, this, this isn't the right place for me, be it right or wrong. So I think that authenticity is, um, is something that leaders have needed to, needed to share more than ever um, in the last 18 months. Would you, would you, would you say that your communication levels have uh, increased during that time? Uh, I think that, well, they've had to, absolutely right. But I mean, you, you raise a great point and, and it's not an easy word to say authenticity, is it? It's something that has become a standard kind of corporate statement that you hear from the, you know, the big, the big boys, you know, your IBMs and your Cisco's and people like that. But actually the first kind of reference I've seen to it actually comes from um, a guy called Bill George, who I think we were going to talk about later on um, from a book called Find Your True North. So yeah, authenticity is is probably one of the most important things, and that and that only comes from you communicating well with all of your your teams and your staff. And, and there is only one way to do that, I think, which is to be doing that face to face. I've got to say, just as a thirty second piece, here, I have enjoyed the return of the old fashioned phone call. To be honest, Peter, like everyone was so obsessed with Zooms and video meetings for so long, I said. Do you want if we just have a walk and a talk? So I wouldn't mind getting outside in the open air and actually uh, not having to sit in front of a screen for another blinking hour. It was kind of quite nice to be able to do that, right? The, the old-fashioned phone call. Well, no, I, I absolutely agree. And, you, you know, even recently with some of my younger members of the team, because we have all age groups um, in Intergent, but some of the younger members, and it's it's a kind of a good and bad thing, is they love using emails. And I keep saying to them, look, guys, emails are fine, but just pick the phone up. It's yeah. so much better way of doing business. And again, this goes back to what I was saying about the training that I had. But actually, um, we forget you can still pick the phone up and speak to people. And that's the best way for me to do business is to actually either speak to people face-to-face or, or do the phone call. I've, I've said it on a couple of occasions, but I regard that virtually every business being a people one. Like if, if you don't have people interaction being in the right way with the right guys, then you're really, really going to struggle. And I think ultimately if you don't have clear channels of communication and sometimes emails are really dangerous things because things can be misconstrued, misinterpreted, taken the wrong way. And I'm with you, Peter. I've said for years and years and years, please pick up the phone. Even better, if there are someone, a client in London or you're able to see them face-to-face, do that because there is nothing quite like the seeing whites of someone's eyes in relation to understanding their problem and what they're needing from a situation, right? One of the things, um, just to finish in relation to kind of culture and bits and pieces, but I've thought that more and more, I really believe that strong cultural cultures can exist from a very remote model or a hybrid model. But it, would it be fair to say it's just it just requires a little bit more thought and effort from leaders to make sure it does exist? Or would you would you say that you've got a different spin on that? We all operate in a world, leaders, that we kind of want our – you want your people to be happy. That's like – one of the fundamentals that from leadership that if you if you've got a happy workforce, you're hopefully going to have a pretty decent company. And therefore, I don't think any of us want to limit or restrict people to yes, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. But we also recognise the risks to culture and uh, you know buy-in that, that having a fully remote workforce does. Would you agree that it is still possible to have a a, a strong and positive culture? Even with a, like a largely hybrid and remote model, Peter, it just requires a bit more effort. Um, I, I, this, this again is my personal opinion. I think is a lot, lot harder to do to do stuff remotely. That's not to say you can't do it, but it requires a real huge amount of thought and effort. And during lockdown, we did. I, I alluded to it earlier. We did what we could, and it did require a lot of persistence and you know getting used to the the whole thing. But I keep coming back to the fact that actually. The only way for me is to see people face to face. We're coming out of the restrictions now, Peter. 
and you mentioned that there's a probably a handful of people that are, f- are fully remote. Were you? Did you have a large percentage of kind of remote or hybrid workers before the pandemic, or was it a, a, a very a, a very small percentage? And like moving forwards, how do you ensure that those kind of remote workers that are now remote, largely remote, don't feel excluded from kind of what you're doing as a business? Well, so I think I, I probably alluded to the the fact that when we went into lockdown, the first lockdown. We were already a, a kind of a quasi virtual business anyway, because we could provide everything from home, and people were used to that fact. So maybe you know, working parents that have school issues, which means that they may not want to um, necessarily come into the office or be able to come to the office. That technology will allow them to continue providing services. So clients, when they're ringing in, don't even know that that, that they're working from home. Because it doesn't really matter in, in today's connected environment, you can literally work from anywhere. You know, you're working from your office and I'm working from mine. We're still having a great conversation. But I think that to, to your point about excluding people, it is a lot more difficult if they're working from home all the time. Now, some people are happy with that. And if they are, then that, that's fine. But I think what we're saying to people is unless you have a really good reason, whether it's to do with a health issue, whether it's to do with um, you know, family, childcare, whatever, then the expectation is that three days a week you'll come into work uh, and then the other two days you can work from home. And I personally can't see that changing. I think that's the, the fundamental difference is that as businesses and employers, we do need to accept that the work change has probably uh, changed for good. And I think that's quite a positive thing because I do think it's better work-life balance if you can work two or three days a week at home. Yeah, I'm with you. I am with you. I, I, I think there can't be many humans that in one job or the other. Thankfully, I haven't had it for many years now, but get that Monday dread. And I think if one of those days is like, well, I, actually, I work from you know from home every single Monday, I, I think it will help mental health. I think it will help positivity, productivity, yeah. and all those things. Um, and as you say, hopefully that can be a long-lasting change that actually makes a positive difference as long as that balance is there. Just one yeah. other thing to add, Peter, as well, which again is 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 quite a contentious subject. But I think there there were a number of employers, and and I think this is probably what's driven some of the kind of the comments about well, we're all going back to the office, is that some managers felt there was a lot of loss of control through people working from home. I've not seen any evidence within our staff that actually they have been not working as effectively at home. But, but on the other hand, as I said, the, the the collectiveness of actually working in a collaborative environment that that that's missed, and people we all missed it. So I think that's what we've seen as we've come out of that this new hybrid environment. If anything, it's a lot better than it was before, it, even the pandemic started. Absolutely, one of the things that was um, fascinating to me when we were an earlier business of sub fifty people, sixty people, was when we hired our first L and D professional trained up. And up to that point, fairly uh, comical to admit, but uh, the way that we used to learn was here's 20 of the most fundamental things that we used to do. Here's a load of text on PowerPoint presentations that we'll talk about, write it down, talk about, write it down. And when my L&D professional came in, she said, Pete, I can see why you've done it this way, but are you aware that it's about 5% of the population actually learn this way? Yeah. And I said, what do you mean? Now talk about someone that um, was going into learning from a completely blank canvas. But the reality is like external learning or remote learning, there's going to be so many people that learn in so many different ways. And it probably 
is up to leaders to make sure that their learning mediums are as varied as they can to support all those different ways of learning. Because a little bit like our failing, goodness knows how we managed to have a, a semi-successful business in the early days with that kind of learning style. But it's a, it was one of those fascinating things where you don't know what you don't know. And sometimes you want to get some outside expertise in to be able to give you a bit of a, a bit Absolutely. of a guide around these things, right? So yeah. um, have you seen any changes within your sector or your business in relation to workplace attire, Peter? It's an interesting subject, but one that we've that we've that kind of had a, con- a few conversations about the last few weeks. We've um, maybe noticed a bit more of a, a relaxed style that people are preferring now. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, opinions on workplace attire? Yeah, I mean, I grapple with that. I mean, funnily enough, I've got a, I've got a wardrobe full of suits, and I can't remember the last time. Well, I wore I wore a suit at a funeral, sadly, about eighteen months ago, and that's the I literally have not worn a business suit for about three or four years now. And again, I think it's a good thing um, because I think people see you. You know, talk, talking about being authentic, they see you in your normal kind of environment, the way you, you, you'd normally come across to people. Whereas the suit thing, you, you know, I did it for years. You know, we, we all wore white shirts and, you know, tried to look like IBMers when we were out selling things. And I, I hasten to, I had the moustache as well, you know, the, the sales moustache that we nice. had in the, in the 80s and 90s. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's a lot better now. I, I really do think it's better that, 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 that you have a more relaxed uh, dress code. Having said that, we do have some rules because, and this is where the, the challenge is, because the the dev team, you know what developers are like. They do like to have this sort of very, very relaxed, you know, getting pizza into the office and dressing in jeans with holes. And we do have some rules that say, look, you know, it's smart casual. Because I, th- I still think that people appreciate having some rules. I remember um, being reminded that it doesn't feel that long ago now. It was only 2010. UBS publishing a 44-page manual that went pretty viral, instructing its bankers how to dress and what to smell like. And it really kind of detailed absolutely everything. And I, I, I feel fairly delighted that the world's moved away from that equation. But I think I'm, I, I agree with you. I think the um, the reality of being able to have something that's flexible but still has you know some, some, some confines in there is probably good for employees and employers alike, right? It's funny, it's funny, just a, a similar sort of subject. So a very good friend of mine lives in Vancouver and he's in a tennis club and he published this photograph on Facebook, I think it was a couple of days ago, and um, they were all dressed in whites and quite a few of my friends here were quite horrified. It was quite an amusing conversation because it just shows even with things like dress code for um, sports clubs that things have changed. Now, obviously, Canada are quite conservative in some respects, so... Yet they insisted everybody just wore whites, and people in the UK were quite shocked actually that, that things that you know in some parts of the world have still stayed quite conservative. A bit of a change in relation to the the thing that I'd love to cover with you now, Peter, because it's, it's it sounds like that. There were, am I right in saying there've been some business changes since the pandemic that you guys had to had to bring in a bit of a change to business philosophy, or is it is it is it, is it been left largely untouched with what you were doing pre and post pandemic? You know, and again, this is a very live, real example. The the managed service business, which has really grown dramatically in the last two years, um, because you know clients have needed the sorts of services we provide. You know, we have some fantastic customers, um, global customers, all shapes and sizes. The consulting part, which is a really key part, the digital change, that has been more difficult to do because, again, doing it over Teams and Zoom has been really quite tricky. Having said that. The exception is we've just won a multi-million pound contract for a big university to do a complete campus refresh of all of their infrastructure. That was done completely over Zoom and Teams. 
like, don't get me wrong, I'm with you. I prefer to do business, yeah. especially for large, large deals, face-to-face, of course. But it, there's got to be some serious lack of petrol, having to do lots of meetings, lack of waste of time of going to all these meetings. For, for some clients and businesses that can operate in a wholly Zoom world, there's got to be the occasional positive, right? Well, no, I think there's lots of positives. And I think one of them, which is a great point you've raised, is that I think for all of us, whether we're in your business or mine, uh, and this applies both to us interacting with clients and vice versa, where I think it will it will fundamentally change the workplace is that, you know, the old thing where you went off, you try and get two or three meetings in a day if you're driving from, say, Cambridge down to Guildford or, you know, Sussex or somewhere, you try and get two or three meetings to make sure you maximize your day. And they might be all first calls with clients. Actually, that doesn't need to happen now because those first calls, which sometimes could be a waste of time, you can do that over over a Teams call. It's when you get down to the more important things, what like the clients really wants to know more about you as a business and understand the culture of the company and everything else. And likewise, you want to understand the client. That's a, that's a second or third meeting. So, yes, environmentally, it's great. It's also time saving is great. And I think you get better outcomes out of it as well. So I do think there's some real positives out of it. And I think that will stay. I want to get on to talking about, because as you say, the MSP and support market and technology has absolutely exploded as it was going to in the last 18 months. One of those industries that thankfully, with all the bad ones that got absolutely massively impacted, it was what... Or more on the positive end of things. Um, I want to come on to talking about this, the way that you see the skills demand in the UK, the effect of Brexit, how companies can best manage still trying to uh, attract that best talent. But one of the things we've just touched upon there, and it's good to talk about it because it is a front and centre issue for everyone at the moment, is sustainability within the technology sector. And it'd be really good to hear from you, Peter, with, with the experience that you have done of where sustainability fits with lots of businesses and, uh, and what other things that Intergents are doing to to, to, to to make a positive change in that area? Yeah, no, I go back to what we talked about originally. Uh, sustainability is very close to my own heart. I mean, I have got a hybrid and I'm going electric for my, for my own car, hopefully in the next two or three months. Yeah, I mean, we're doing everything we can in terms of our carbon footprint, trying to get to zero carbon. We actually have quite a small carbon footprint already because we, we actually sit on a site that's pretty sustainable. I think that chatting to a number of CIOs and CTOs, and this this comes back to this this uh, away day we're doing next week, there is a lot more that we can do in IT on sustainability. Interesting enough, the away day is actually a farm in Norfolk. We're taking CIOs and CTOs. And we've had a really amazing take up on that because most organisations now are incorporating it into their kind of cultural values. So it's not just a nice to have. You know, we we are looking at trying to get to zero carbon by 2030, I think, if I remember correctly. So it's really important we, we do um, everything we can. Now, again, one of the themes next week is that I'm old enough because I'm from Manchester originally. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm a big United fan. Um, not Never a, mind. Not, not a happy, happy result on Saturday, but, um, you know, showing my age here a bit. But when I was in, you know, school up in Manchester – I remember clearly where there were frosts, you know, even October. When was the last time we had a frost um, in October? It just doesn't happen, does it? So uh, now we've got to be careful with that because that's kind of anecdotal stuff. But obviously going back to my geography background, we, we don't know whether actually this is all, you know, the climate change. Because you can't argue there's climate change. It has changed. It's all down to man. 
or whether there are other factors involved. But having said that, we'd be stupid not to take notice of it. It's a bit like somebody saying, well, actually, do you know, Peter, you're, you're quite a bad driver. You need to go and, um, or a policeman saying you're a bad driver, you need to go and change your driving behaviour. Otherwise, you might have a crash and kill yourself. Why, why would you not take notice of that? Yeah. And I think all of the evidence is pointing towards the fact that actually there is quite a significant change in our climate. So we, we should do something about it. And I think um, the more we kind of ingrain that into all of our cultural values, the better. But even the whole sustainability about counterintuitive thinking. So, for example, well, I was blown away by this particular farm because they've actually done away with herbicides and pesticides completely. And actually, their yields have gone up. So they're talking about rewilding parts of the of the estate and allowing weeds and stuff to grow. Um, and, and well, why is that important? Well, actually, we need to think the same way about some of the things we're doing in our own businesses. You know, what can we actually do proactively to change and think differently about the way we're delivering services to our clients? These are the kind of things, of course, Peter, that they're not going to be meetings you're having day to day every week about these kind of things. Do you have a particular be it around your cultural charter or do you have a time each quarter each year like the actual practical steps that businesses can do to ensure these things happen because there'll be lots of businesses out there that are worried about or or concerned every day about being in the mud and and working hard for their clients and working as best they can how 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 can stable businesses and scaling businesses make sure that these things are part of uh, uh, part of their business conversations it should be ingrained in your culture as a, as a mission statement that actually which we have about how how you sustain your carbon footprint and some of the schemes which are at the moment they're in their infancies but you, you know you can do you know carbon offsets so as i said our carbon footprint's pretty small but we're still doing things there. And that doesn't mean to say you've got to become completely obsessive about it, but it needs to be something that is part of your culture. And, you know, once a quarter at your management meeting, it just needs to be, well, you know, there's a section in there about well, what yeah. are we doing? And, and I think that's the kind of bare minimum we should be doing, as well as making sure we're looking at things like the carbon trust, um, making sure you're aware of what's going on in the world of, of climate. It's basic things like that and just making people aware that you're actually serious about doing something about it. Absolutely. Um, and, and as always, action's been, been much uh, much more powerful than words sometimes, Peter, as yeah. you say, you don't really have some specifics that you can do against it. You guys are in technology. You'll be incredibly aware of, of automation and AI replacing human tasks. There was this recent PwC study um, called Workforce of the Future that surveyed 10,000 people um, and it was found that 34% are of, of, of seriously worried about automation, putting jobs at risk. Um, I think there will, of course, always be um, uh, roles that have to be people, people-led because of the subtleties and nuances that exist uh, between people and roles and bits and pieces. Where do you sit in relation to the concern that 34% of those 10,000 surveyed had in relation to their fear around automation and AI replacing human tasks? Well, the first thing I would say on that is that People have always been scared of change, all of us, including me, you know, because we, we, we get comfortable with things we know. So anything that's new, you're always going to get resistance to. I think um, as industry leaders, one of our things we should be doing is is actually explaining the benefits. And I think that get, gets forgotten about. So I'll give you a couple of examples of what I mean. The Stratium platform we have, which we developed ourselves in-house, is designed to help our customers um, manage their infrastructure better. So we use it ourselves. 
we've actually reduced the number of trouble tickets by 40%. So that that has a direct impact. Now, a lot of that is using AI. So it's taking away some of those laborious tasks that the service team have had to do because it's just automating it. Now, it doesn't mean to say we've needed less people. We've actually managed to change the skill set. The other one, which, again, we've seen a big change, is software-defined networks. So, uh, you know, traditional kind of infrastructure experts, which we have, you know, your Cisco's and your Junipers. The advent of software-defined networks has meant that actually traditional infrastructure engineers have be, had to become much more software experts. Now, some people have taken to it and seen it as a massive opportunity to upskill themselves. Other people have found it quite challenging. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not an age issue at all. It can affect all different age groups. And I think, again, the way around it is to just reassure people uh, and explain really what the benefits of the new technology are. I also think you, you touch on a, an excellent point there, Peter, and it's something that we try to have every single internal meeting that I have. I talk about the if people have the deep-rooted desire to learn, that that is an approach that from my role to the newest trainee, if you've got a, a deep desire to learn all the time, you're never going to be in bad stead because that, that same survey that I mentioned before about people being scared, and I absolutely agree with your point, human beings aren't very well wired for change. I think often it feels scary before people accept something. But in the same study, 74% of people are ready to learn new skills or retrain to remain employable in the future. I think as long as people were like, cool, I'd love to learn something new and, and, and let me throw myself at anything new on any uh, any potential learning that can be done, I'll, I'll absolutely you go in for it. Hopefully, um, that, that there shouldn't be that situation where people um, are just simply going to be made redundant because their particular type of work has been taken over by, by AI or whatever the case may be. So hopefully, that heart of learning being at the center of what everyone does Whatever your position, hopefully you'd agree would be would be a pretty fundamental mindset to have. Yeah, I agree. And again, you, you know, I, I include myself in this bucket as well. Is that it's good to really challenge yourself and push yourself at times. I mean, um, as you know, I've just done this bike ride, and, and I had a bit of a, a bit of a health issue which w- was found at the last minute. And I went to my cardiologist and said, "Is this, is this a good idea doing three hundred and thirty miles in four days?" And he said, "Well, as long as you train for it." And then you should be fine. And I was thinking quite, you know, quite a lot of trepidation. Well, well, can I do this? You know, and and pushing yourself to do things. I find learning quite difficult in some respects, particularly things I'm not comfortable with. But I think that's a good thing to push yourself because actually, if you don't push yourself, you never really know what you can achieve. It's been one of the most fascinating areas that has been a common theme amongst all of the excellent leaders that I've spoken to about in the podcast so far, Peter, is that there are some organizations that say you literally won't get hired if there's nothing interesting on your CV that you do outside of work because it shows a maybe a bit too dramatically, but a fixed mindset. I've, I've just started to learn to fly in the last few weeks and I didn't particularly like science at school. I wasn't very good at it. So therefore naturally I gravitated towards the stuff that I was better at. Yeah. And all of a sudden seeing, you know, I like vehicles, I like driving. So therefore doing something that is that on its basis seemed quite a straightforward task. And, and, and I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. I definitely am aware of that myself. I like mountains and dangerous places and all that kind of stuff. But the complexity involved with the mechanics, yeah, the, the map reading and geography, to go back to, to your point, and, and all of these physical things that I haven't had to think about for years and years. But one of the things that I'm enjoying about it the most is it's really requiring a different part of my brain to operate. Um, and, I, and I know that a couple of our guests, including Sophie from Shell, have talked about how they say, no, you've got to spend 10% of your working life 
doing something, absolutely nothing remotely connected with the role that you do. And at the time, I thought, well, that sounds revolutionary. But actually, the more people I speak to, I think people that actually want to test themselves and their brain in a different way, even though it will at times be definitely uncomfortable, gotta, it's got to do something to kind of stretch yourself and, 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 and make you look at other, uh, other problems in a different way, right? I think there's a lot to be said for that. Completely agree, yeah. yeah. Um, um, let's get on um, now into the skills market, Peter. As a business that is landing big contracts and sounds like is, is, is in a really positive place off the back of this pandemic, naturally, you're going to be looking for people that can add value to your business in all manner of technical yeah. skills and expertise. How have you found the skills market for talent in the last 18 months? I don't mean to sound facetious here, but actually um, having a partner like you has made a big difference because I think you've, you've done a great job for us and continue to do so. So that's been really brilliant. I think as a general observation, though, about skills, one of the, the real frustrations for me, um, and I can say this as a white middle-aged male, is that we don't have enough talent pool of women. And I think that also goes back to schooling. I don't think that you know engineering, science, or technology for that matter, is actually being made interesting enough for women to come into because the women we've we've got employed in the business and have had employed in the business over the years have been as equal, if not better, than their male counterparts. Um, we just can't get hold of enough of them. And you'd have thought that would have been a really easy problem to fix, wouldn't you? Because actually there's a huge pool of talent out there that's just not being used. And I think that would make um, a huge difference. I'm not sure what I can do about it personally, but it's just something that I think we need to do a lot more to fix mm. in the tech. And, and, and there's some great tech leaders I know, women leaders, um, and I know they're passionate about trying to change it, but um, it's a problem mm. that does need to be fixed because actually that would solve a lot of the skill shortages we've got. Yeah, I, I agree with you totally. I think it's got to be something that society and government looks at from a schooling age, but it's been so great to have some outstanding female tech leaders come on the podcast so far. And I think what it's got to be about is making sure that companies are promoting through social media and the channels that, yeah. that, that youngsters are looking at to actually make uh, women leaders and women technology leaders and life sciences leaders, of course, as well. Wow, that's something that I want to aspire to be in as much sharing in relation to the content of the people that have done things as possible. So hopefully with the fact that it's an increasingly communicative world from a social media angle, Hopefully, there'll be more and more chances of um, the people that have done great things being able to, um, you know, really highlighted as, uh, as that. So hopefully, that will be at least one strand of how things can get better. I've been in the industry for 17 years now. This isn't a problem that's just come up. As you well know, it's no, been something that's been, been the case for many, many years. So, Correct. yeah, I, I do think it could have a, a serious conversation about how things could get better, and it certainly needs it, I'd agree. What does good leadership look like in this post-lockdown world now, would you say? Well, I do think that uh, authenticity is is one of the big things. I, I, I alluded to the fact that to be a great leader, I think you've got to be humble. You know, going back to the bike ride, there was some some pretty impressive people on the bike ride in terms of their you know CVs and what they'd done in life. But what was great was that no no none of them seemed to have any egos on the bike ride because we were all focused on the one thing, which is raising a whole load of money for charity. And I think that that's the thing I've learned. All of the leaders I've worked with, the really great ones, have been humble, very approachable, and um, don't have a big ego. And that that's what you know, my my definition of authenticity is: is for anybody to be able to approach you to just be yourself. And I think we're going to talk about this book in a minute. But it, you know, if there's one book that I 
rate highly, it's that, which is very much about making sure that anybody you speak to, you treat everybody the same, whether, you know, it's a waiter in a restaurant or whether it's a CEO um, or a, a celebrity, yeah. you just treat them the same. Absolutely. And it, and that's Bill George's Find Your True North, right? Actually, that would be the book that you recommend if people haven't been aware of it. Yeah, it's a great book because it, it because it does talk about um, how you define yourself. You, you know, we all talk about mental health. We all go through what he calls his uh, crucible moments. So, you know, we all go through difficult times. And I think one of the things the pandemic's taught me is that, you know, some days, you know, somebody might be grumpy for a reason. Uh, and it might be because we don't really know what's going on with their personal life. And I think Cutting people a bit of slack is important. You know, we all go through difficult times and it's been difficult for all of us. So that's the good thing that's come out of the pandemic is that I think we've all been in this together. It, it's got many similar sentiments to to what has been my most impactful book, Peter, which has been called Trillion Dollar Coach, which is about this chap called Bill Campbell that has started off as a high school football coach, but then ended up being an executive coach to some of Silicon Valley's biggest cheeses. But the thing that was glorious when I read that and have read it a couple of times now it just doesn't matter who he was dealing with it just it's the same stuff it's like how are you as a human being what's going on with you and then let's just kind of work through what you're doing together and it doesn't matter what your title is what position you're in if you can yeah. approach things in that guise it's um incredibly humbling which is probably why he had two and a half thousand people turn up to his funeral with some of yeah. the, the, the silicon valley's biggest things and as i say Bill's way of doing things was extremely huggy, touchy-feely, which certainly won't be everyone's cup of tea. But ultimately, he was true to himself, and I think that's what people recognise and can share so much. So it sounds pretty similar to, to, to some of Bill George's sentiment. And, and I haven't read it, Peter, so without a doubt, I'll, I'll, I'll be getting stuck into that at some point as well. Well, he, he, he also does some great um, some great podcasts as well, Pete. So the, the, you know, he's, he's well publicised online, so I right. definitely recommend. So some great learnings from that. Excellent. Um, I'm naturally a half glass full person, Peter, and I do like to ask this when I remember to do so. What are you most optimistic about right now? Humanity, I suppose. I think, you know, I think the press tends to dwell too much on the negatives, but I think there's been some amazing things that have come out of the pandemic, whether it's the NHS, whether it's just people doing work for others. Um, I was involved in a process with my local village where we were going around looking after people that were shielding or vulnerable. That that was important. I mean, the, the the charity charities we've been involved with, the Ruth Strauss Foundation, which is and Grief Encounter for the, you know, we raised four hundred thousand pounds. So there's been a lot of people, not just myself, but others, raising an awful lot of money for charities, and people have been incredibly generous as well. So I think the generosity, because I'm, you know, whether you know, but charities have been really hit during the pandemic because a lot of their normal fundraising activities they just haven't been able to do. But but also, I think generally speaking, you've seen a lot of philanthropic things happening and i think that that's been a real positive as well i agree totally with your sentiment the one thing that i hope lasts which i i guess i'm most fearful of but i hope can last is that humanity element to it just everyone seems to be a little bit more flexible a little bit more understanding whereas before it was go 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 and god what do you mean you're having a bad day pull yourselves up get on with it whereas now i think people just i think they really have fundamentally changed and i hope it is a fundamental change rather than just a temporary shift and i guess time will tell in relation to that yes. um yeah. one other thing that's important to ask as a guy that certainly likes uh, being out and about and um, enjoying some of the finer things in life from time to time you've got a free afternoon peter you can spend it anywhere you want restaurant bar you've got an afternoon and maybe a, a fairly unlimited budget of what you want to do where are you going to spend it 
Um, I mean, I love the UK. I mentioned, you know, the the, the cycle ride. Um, but but I I suppose learning Italian, you know, you can't beat Tuscany. So if I had the chance to do a bike ride through Tuscany and end up with you know, my wife and family at a lovely Tuscan restaurant eating pasta, I don't think you could get much. Obviously, assuming the weather was good as well, of course, you could sit outside. Absolutely. I don't think you could really beat that. I got engaged to my wife in Tuscany, Peter, up in a beautiful little village um, up in the Tuscan hills. But um, I'd agree with you, Tuscany is the most wonderful place. Is there, have you got any favourite places in, in Tuscany, Peter? I think... Well, funny, well, I'll tell you a story in a minute, actually, which raises the bike. But um, I would say San, San Gimignana, which is beautiful. Um, nice. I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. But, um, but, but yes, it is absolutely stunning. Bologna is beautiful as well. Funny enough, the bike ride was due to be from Pisa to the Italian Riviera, but we ended up doing Carlisle to the Cotswolds. Different kind of vibe. Yeah, but it Maybe. was beautiful in its own way. Um, but apparently they are going to redo it next year. So um, I may be looking for some more sponsorship next year. So I'll be doing it once more. Well, it, it clearly hasn't put you off too much, Peter, and that's, that's good to hear. I think one of the small other positives before uh, uh, I, I, I ask you one final question is, the appreciation of the the beautiful British Isles that we've all benefited from has been has been certainly something. When you can't travel um, all four corners of our of our lovely country, I think have been appreciated like never before. And I think I've, it's been nice to see people having so many trips yeah. to places that they wouldn't have gone had had, had the airplanes yeah. been open. Final thing then from me: um, Is there one thing in the working world, Peter, that you think more people should know? That's a brilliant question. I'm I'm thinking on my feet. Um, I think that. More people need to understand more about international business. I mean, we did have a business in Dubai um, for a time, and I loved doing it. But I don't think we realized at the time how hard it was going to be as well. Mm. I think you've, you've gone through similar growing pains, haven't you, with yours. So I think from a business perspective, I think there's more that we could do um, helping others in terms of sharing experiences. Personally, I think we can do more. I'm talking about outside of business now. I do think we can do more to help others um, from a charity point of view. So that's something which I'm you know, actively involved with a number of charities myself. But I think we tend to forget because we're all busy that actually there are other people that are less well off than we are. And there is lots of things we can do as business people to help. Um, Absolutely agree. Yeah, uh, I know that it's uh, part of what our DNI uh, and charity committee are busy setting up for our new financial year, which is in October. And I, I, I do agree it needs a dedicated space to talk about to make sure we're impacting things as much as we can. Peter, thanks so much for sharing your leadership learns and journey with us today. I'm sure there'll be lots that resonated with the listeners and like me, they'll be taking away some valuable ideas. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network. 